Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Today we are in Genesis chapter 18. Last week God came to Abraham and talked to him about his covenant and expanded uh, upon his covenant with Abraham. And Abraham asked God, he says, yes, you've promised to bless me, but um, with a child, and, but all I have so far is Ishmael. Will you not fulfill your promises through Ishmael? And God says to Abraham, no, I will give you a son of your own through Sarah. And I will bless Ishmael, but he will not be the child of promise. And so today we look at the revelation of that, of that um, promise to Sarah, as well as an announcement that God gives to Abraham and how he reacts to both of those announcements. And so let us begin reading in Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a willow water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. Then he brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where's your wife, Sarah? They asked him. Well, there in the tent, he said. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am old and worn out, and my ma- or excuse me, after I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard from the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid and she lied and said, I didn't laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and what is just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down to see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, 
treating the righteous and the wicked alike, alike, far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, the Lord said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Let us pray. Our gracious and holy God, our righteous and just God, open our eyes to your word today. Open our hearts to your love today. Open our minds to the words that you have for us. And Lord, open my mouth. I am a broken and faltering and stammering man seeking to proclaim your glory. Give me your spirit so that I may do so well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is the heat of the day. It is that hot moment in the day where for those who work outside, you understand you'd really just kind of like to have a break. You'd like to stop. You'd like to sit down and rest because it is hot. And in other cultures around the world, the culture that Abraham grew up in and the Latin cultures, Latin American culture around us, they do that very thing. They take a siesta. I remember when I was in Ecuador in high school, everything kind of shut down between noon and two because they were taking their siesta. They were taking their afternoon nap. And interestingly enough, some studies have been done recently that people are more productive when they do those things. So I make it a point every day from about 11 in the morning till I don't know, five, six in the evening to just stop and take a nap. Just kidding. Abraham had done that. Abraham had come to that hot part of the day and it was time for him to take a break. And as he sat down to take a break, he looked up and there were these three men coming toward him walking down the road. And as his culture did, that was a very hospitable culture. They practiced the art of taking care of and loving the stranger well. Abraham showed his humility and his, and his hospitality and how he dealt with these three men. In his humility, we see him in verse 2 bowing low. We see him calling himself a servant in verses 3 and verse 5. And we see in verse 8 his humility that he just stood near a tree and waited to serve them once again as they ate the meal that he had prepared for them. We see Abraham's hospitality and the fact that in the middle of this hot part of the day, he sees three travelers walking down the road and he invites them into the shade of his trees and the shade of his tent. He gives them water for their feet so that they can refresh themselves and wash the dust of the road from their feet. And he offers them a morsel of food and then provides for them a feast of a calf and curds and milk. Hospitality is more than merely entertaining. 
We think of hospitality today, we think that our house has to look like a Southern Living magazine or something like that. But hospitality is more than merely entertainment. Dr. Bruce Waltke says that hospitality is making room in our hearts for people very much in the same way that we make room at our table for them when they come to eat with us. It's offering family to them. It's offering our feelings and our emotions. It's getting to know them. It's rejoicing where they rejoice and it's weeping when they weep. And Abraham gives us a vivid example of this. In fact, Abraham entertains angels unaware as we're told in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. Because these men were the Lord Himself and two of His angels or His messengers. But as important as Abraham's hospitality is in this passage, and it is important, it is something that we should all be in the hobbit, the, the, hobbit, the habit of practicing. The important part of today's passage is the announcements that God gives and how Abraham responds to those announcements. And so we're going to look at God's announcement of blessing upon Sarah and Abraham, Sarah specifically today. We're going to look at God's announcement of judgment. And we're going to look at how in light of that announcement of blessing and judgment, Abraham intercedes for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. First, God announces blessing. Whenever we read in the Scriptures, what we read in verse 1 here, the Lord appeared to Abraham. It's always good for us to ask, well, why is God here and why is God here now? What is He doing? God doesn't just appear for fun. God appears for a purpose. And the purpose to appearing to Abraham at first is to announce blessing. Now we know from the previous chapter that he's already announced this blessing of a child named Isaac to Abraham. What we don't know is whether or not Abraham had told Sarah about this announcement and naming of the child after Abraham had left. But we do know that Sarah's faith was lacking. And we'll see that in her response to God's blessing. So what does God promise to Sarah? He promises her that within a year, about this same time next year, he's going to come back and Sarah will have delivered a child to Isaac or to, to Abraham. Excuse me. Now, in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, when God comes to Abraham and establishes his covenant with Abraham, that's one of the main promises. It's a promise of descendants. It's a promise of children. Abraham and Sarah and Hagar took matters into their own hands and produced Ishmael, who would be blessed with descendants, but he would not be the child of promise. That would come through Sarah. And so God announces this, and Sarah is eavesdropping uh, in the background, and she hears these words. And she responds the same way Abraham did in the last passage. She laughs at God. Now, why does she laugh? To us, it would be reasonable that she would laugh. She is beyond the age of childbearing. Abraham, we're told in Hebrews 11 and also in the passage in Romans 4 that we read today, Abraham's body was as good as dead when it came to childbirth. And so it would be from our perspective, it would be natural for Sarah to respond in disbelief. But what does God say to her? He says to her, why did you laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? That word there that is translated hard in other places in the Old Testament is translated with words like marvelous or incomprehensible or too glorious. 
for the Lord. Basically, what God does here is he tells Sarah the same thing he told to Abraham back in chapter 15 when he announced to Abraham that he would have a child. Remember there in Genesis chapter 15, he says, you will have a child. And and Abraham goes, well, I don't have one yet. How's that going to work? And he says, go out and look at the stars. And if you can count them, you will have descendants that outnumber the number of the stars. But remember, we also talked about the fact that Abraham was to look at the stars and consider the power of the God who had created the stars. And he says almost the same thing here to Sarah. He said, is anything too marvelous for me? Is anything too miraculous for me? Is anything too stupendous for me? Is anything impossible for me? I am the God who created everything around you. I'm the God who created you. Trust that my promise will come to fruition. We actually celebrate this time of the year a very similar circumstance from Luke chapter 1 where the angel comes to Mary and says, you will have a child very much like Elizabeth. Your cousin is going to have a child in her old age. You will have a child in your young age. And that child will be the savior of humanity. And Mary looks at the angel Gabriel and says, I'm a virgin. I'm not even married. How am I going to have a child? And the angel says, nothing is impossible for the Lord. It's the same idea that we have here where God speaks directly to Sarah and says, is there anything too miraculous for me? And the unanswered question to that is no, nothing is too miraculous for God. And he says, you should not have laughed. But I also find it comforting in this that not only is nothing too marvelous for God, but he confronts her with grace in her sin of doubt. It's comforting for a couple reasons. It's comforting because the heroes of the faith, both Abraham and Sarah, end up in Hebrews chapter 11, where we have this list of Old Testament saints who believed in God. Both of them laughed at God when he gave them the promise of a child. Their falterings, their failings, their dishonesties later on, uh, earlier in their life and also later on in their life, God meets with his grace. God meets with his presence. God meets with that child of promise. So when I doubt, when I sin, it's good to know that God still meets me. He confronts me with my sin, but He confronts me with grace. And He confronts me with with His love. And so God announces a blessing to Sarah, the blessing of a son, and He calls Sarah to trust in Him. But after the blessing of, or after the announcement of blessing, God goes and announces to Abraham judgment. Judgment that was going to fall upon the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he he stops and he, he announces judgment for the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. But we need to look first at what is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. So take a moment and turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 16. And we'll begin in verse 49 and read 49 and 50. We have a tendency to think of the sins of Sodom in a very specific way and in a very narrow way. In fact, we have named a sin after the sin of after the city of Sodom. And just like we do with first Corinthians, chapter six, verse nine, we take a very narrow view of the sins that are listed and the sins that promises judgment against. But Ezekiel fleshes out for us exactly what the sins of Sodom were as he compares the nation of Israel to the city of Sodom. In Ezekiel 16, 49, he says, This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. 
They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. So what were the sins of Sodom? Sins of arrogance. They were very proud of everything they had. They were proud of the riches they had. They were proud of their status as well-known city-states within the area, even though that status led them to have to be rescued by Abraham earlier in the account. They were guilty of the sin of gluttony. They were guilty of the sin of having too much and not sharing it. They were overfed and unconcerned. They lived by the mantra, get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the lid. They had, they, there were the haves and there were the have-nots, and the haves refused to, to share with the have-nots because they were apathetic to the plight and they, of the poor and they neglected the poor. And then once again, if we didn't get the point of arrogance earlier, God mentions pride once again. And then, only then, does God in Ezekiel list the detestable things that they did, the things that we typically associate with Sodom and Gomorrah, the sexual sins that we will look at next week as we look at the attacks upon the messengers of God to Sodom, the messengers who proclaimed a message of repentance and judgment. I think many of our struggles in our country today with marriage and with the permissiveness in the area of sexual sin are the end point of a long line of other sins, of pride, of arrogance, of apathy. It's easy to be apathetic toward the poor and the downtrodden in their world. I pay taxes. I feel like I pay a lot of taxes. And you know, some of that money goes to programs like SNAP and WIC and Medicaid and and other programs. So why do I need to worry about the fact that last night in Greenbrier County, people slept in their cars? Why do I need to worry about the fact that tonight people will not have food to feed their families? There's programs out there. Why don't they just go to DHHR in the morning and get food stamps? Why don't they just go to WIC and get the, the coupons for their milk and for their formula for their kids? We're apathetic to the poor oftentimes. And that's the foundation of a crumble. That's the, crumb, the, the initial crumbling of the foundation of a culture. And I'm afraid that we in our culture and our country today are at the end point of that. Now, God may not rain fire and brimstone down tomorrow, but we are on that path in our culture and in our country. And we have to make sure and be aware that we are not on that path in our churches as well. But God has a very specific reason for wanting to announce this judgment to Abraham. Abraham's not under judgment. Abraham is walking with the Lord. He has believed God and has been declared as righteousness. But God has this interesting conversation with himself where he asks, should I tell Abraham what I am going to do? And he says he decides to tell Abraham what he is going to do for some very specific reasons. He says here in verses 16 through 20, he says, I have chosen him. That word in the original language is I have known him as well. God knows who Abraham is. He knows his failings. He knows his fallings, but he has chosen him to be his chosen people and to give him descendants and to make him the blessing. Why has he chosen him? He has chosen him so that he may direct his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Following the way of the Lord, we've talked about before, is 
ordering our lives in such a way that we have a constant remembrance in our mind of God's presence, of God's promises, and of God's demands. But specifically in today's passage, he wants Abraham to teach his family to walk in the way of the Lord according to what is right and just. Righteousness in God's economy is a set of moral rules, a set of moral codes that brings about community within a group of people. And justice within God's economy is taking action to restore righteousness when it's broken by oppression or broken by sins of arrogance, gluttony, apathy, and neglect of the poor. And so God is saying, I am going to announce this judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah to Abraham because I want to see if he is the type of man who will teach his family, his descendants, how to be righteous and how to be just and how to walk in righteousness and justice. So he decides to declare to Abraham what he is going to do. And how does Abraham do? I would say that he responds with flying colors. He passes the test well. Whenever you read through this passage, it's, it's easy to miss what Abraham does. Because tend to, what I have a tendency to do anyway, and I assume many of you do as well, is that we, we see Abraham as bargaining with God here. And in a sense, that's right. But we look at the bargaining with God as, okay, Abraham's got family in Sodom and he doesn't want his family to be destroyed. So he's kind of hedging his bet trying to get God to get Lot off the hook. Okay, God, you know, if there's 50 people there that are righteous, that trust in you, that believe in you, will you, will you hold it back? Okay, I was probably too big, too big with 50 here. There's probably not 50 there. I mean, I know Sodom. Come on. How about 45? Uh, yeah, 45 is probably too high of a number too. How about 30 or 40 or 20 or even 10? Okay, I'll take 10, God. Will you take 10? Is that okay? That's my final offer. But that's not what Abraham's doing here at all. Abraham asked God to spare Sodom and Gomorrah for 10 righteous people based on God's justice, based on God's righteousness. What does he say here in, the, in verse um, excuse me, 25? He says, Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? That word could also be uh, translated, will not the judge of all the earth do justice? What Abraham is saying here is says, Lord, you've promised life and blessing to those who follow you. You've credited me with righteousness because I believed you. If there are 50 people, which is about the half the size of a decent town during this time frame, if there's half a town of people who are righteous in your sight, you would be unjust to destroy them along with the wicked. You would be unjust to kill them as you punish other people. Remember your justice. Remember your righteousness. Remember that you are the God who has promised to bless nations through me. Bless them through me. I'm going to intercede on their behalf. I'm going to enter into intercessory prayer for the righteous and the unrighteous there. Because the picture that we get in the next chapter when the, when the angels get there to investigate, they proclaim, leave or repent so that you may escape justice. And the picture that we have here is there may not have been 10 righteous people at the moment that Abraham struck the bargain with God. 
But if there were ten righteous people in Sodom or Gomorrah, at some point before God destroyed them, God would relent. Abraham intercedes for potential righteous people within Sodom. He intercedes for potentially unrighteous people who may be righteous at some point in Sodom. And God says, yes, I am a just God. For as little as ten people in the city of Sodom, I will relent. Ten in the ancient Near East was kind of the smallest amount of people that you could have together and still be considered a community, a city, a, a, a village, if you will. Any less than ten, God could save one by one, which He does. God says, I am going to announce to Abraham that I am going to judge them. I have promised to Abraham that he will be a blessing to the nations. I'm going to announce to Abraham the judgment upon Sodom to see if he is really and truly willing to bless the nations. And he did. He prayed on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. He prayed on behalf of potential righteous people that may be there or potential people that could become righteous in the future. And he says, Lord, remember who you are. Remember you're the righteous God. Remember you're the just God. And you should not destroy your people even when bringing judgment upon the wicked. God announces blessing to Abraham and Sarah. God announces judgment to Abraham. And Abraham intercedes for those who are under judgment. In John chapter 3, after that famous verse where Jesus says, you know, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him shall not perish but will have everlasting life. Jesus goes on to say, I did not come into the world to judge the world. But I came into the world so that many people may be saved through me. Why did, God, why did Jesus not come to the world to judge the world? Because the world's already under God's judgment for its sin. Jesus came to intercede on behalf of the people who are under judgment so that they might have judgment escape from them. Or so that they might escape from judgment. Abraham and Jesus both practiced what's called intercessory prayer. It's praying on behalf of someone else. Abraham prays for the righteous here, that they may be saved from the judgment that comes upon the wicked. Do we pray for the righteous? Now, in one sense, we do an excellent job of praying for the righteous. We have our prayer list here. And on our prayer list, we have people who are sick with chronic illnesses or acute illnesses, maybe broken bones or maybe cancer. And we pray really well for physical needs. We need to add to our intercessory prayer for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because not only do we wrestle with physical needs, we wrestle against spirits and principalities. We wrestle against sin. And we need to lift each other up and say, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are living in a world that's antagonistic against them. A world that seeks to tear them down. A world that seeks to destroy them, whether physically or through sin. Strengthen them against temptation. Strengthen them against the attacks of the evil one. Strengthen them against the attacks of the world. But we also need to intercede for those who right now are not the people of God. Because they are under judgment. They are under God's judgment. And the only way to, for them to escape that judgment is come to a, a saving knowledge, a relationship with Jesus Christ where they understand that they are sinners before God, they have broken God's laws, they have rebelled against God, and deserve punishment, deserve judgment. 
And yet Christ offers the blessings of salvation to them, the blessings of escape for judgment. Do you wrestle with God for the souls who are rebellious to him and are under his curse? Or do we let him walk down the street and not give a second thought to him? Do we let him live in our house and not give a second thought to him? I challenge you this week. God has announced blessing upon his people. He says, whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. But he's also announced throughout Scripture that those who are continuously in rebellion against God deserve punishment, eternal punishment. I challenge you this week to add two people to your prayer list. Add a brother or sister that you know that's struggling with something. Not just physical needs, not just sicknesses or illness, but somebody that you know that struggles with depression or temptation or persecution. It may be somebody like Andrew Brunson, who's in prison in Turkey unfairly and unjustly. It may be somebody down the street from you that you know struggles with pornography. Lift up that brother or sister in prayer and say, Lord, I wrestle on their behalf. I pray for them. Remove from them the oppression of their sin. Remove from them the oppression of the temptation to sin. But the second person I challenge you to pray for this week, add to your prayer list is that person that you just really wish somebody would share the gospel with because they need Jesus. You know, you love them. They're a friend. They're a family member. I'm not asking you to share Jesus with them. Kind of. I'm asking you to pray that somebody would. Now that somebody may be you in the future, but all I'm asking you to do is pray. Pray for somebody and say, Lord, they are under judgment They are under the danger of hell. Save them. I love them enough to want them to be saved from hell. And I love them enough to pray for that. I sat with a lady several weeks ago in hospice and she was really distressed that for the last several months she had been sick and been unable to do anything for her church. I said, what kind of stuff did you do for your church? Oh, you know, I was there first thing every Sunday morning. I would help turn on the lights. I'd help make coffee. I'd help set up the tables for the meals. I'd help do this. I'd help do this. And, and you know, I pray every day for my church. I'm like, do you still pray every day for your church? She goes, yeah, that's, that's all I can do. I'm like, that's more than anything else you could do. God works through prayer. You want to see somebody saved? Pray for them. You want to see a Christian who's under the oppression of their own sin and their own temptation be freed from that? Pray for them. God announced judgment to Abraham so that he would intercede. God has announced judgment on the world for us so that we will intercede. Do it. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You that we have the power of prayer. Forgive us for taking that power for granted. Forgive us for letting lost loved ones and lost strangers walk past us. Brothers and sisters walk past us struggling with the weight and the cares and the temptations of this world. Forgive us for not lifting them up in prayer. And Lord, make it a burning desire in our hearts to pray for this world. To pray for the righteous to have rescue and to pray for the unrighteous to have salvation. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.